All right, go ahead and open your Bibles to Judges chapter 7. Judges chapter 7, we are going to jump right into our message today. And Dave, would you grab that music stand for me when you come back up here? Um, Judges chapter 7, if you've been following along with us this month, we've been looking at this story of the 300 and and Judges, and we see Gideon's victory. Thank you so much, David. Um, And here in Judges chapter 7, last week we came to what we would call the climax of the story. The, the most exciting part of the story, this is the part where victory finally came. We, we've seen kind of the calling of Gideon. We've seen why God whittled him down to 300. But then last week, we finally saw it come to a head, and we saw the victory. And if you missed last week, man, I would encourage you to check out the podcast. We saw quite a few things that God teaches us about victory. And I don't know about you, I need victory in my life. I need God's victory in my life. I need his victory in my finances, in my family, in the many, many situations that I face. And so, man, I think last week was with some tremendous, tremendous truths from God's word for us. Today, we're going to go to what I'm calling the post-game show. Uh, This is after the climax, after it's come to a head, after the dramatic victory. Well, what happens next? Uh, Because I know in life, um, life is not a straight line. It's not like we start here and we get to the finish line and then we go to heaven. Life kind of has some ups and downs. Life kind of has some ebbs and some flows, and there's many victories and and small victories and big victories, and there's kind of all this stuff that goes on, and sometimes you don't know exactly where you are on that path. Sometimes you don't know exactly what's going on, and so sometimes when we come off of a victory, we might be surprised that there's another challenge waiting for us as soon as the victory has been won. And that's kind of what Gideon finds right here in Judges chapter 7. What I'm going to give you today is, is just five quick lessons from the post-game show. If you're uh, serving in Kids City with us, one of our Kids City volunteers, you know that we've got a training session after service today. Um, We're going to be going over kind of how to use our new facility to the best of our ability. We're going to be feeding you lunch uh, and hanging out. So we're going to get to that. We're not going to hold everybody up extremely late today, but I want to make sure that I give you these five quick thoughts from the post-game show um, on what happens after victory. Judges chapter 7, starting in verse 22. This is the verse we left off in last week, just to kind of bring it together. It says, When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. The army fled to Beth Shittah towards Zerirah, as far as the border of Abel-Mahola near Tabath. So, basically what has happened, Gideon and his men, they they were 300 men, they came out in the middle of the night, and they broke into three factions of 100, and they had basically two weapons. They had their trumpet, and they had a lamp that was under a jar. And so, at the same time, Gideon and his 100, they blew their trumpet, and they smashed their jars, uh, and the flame kind of flickered up. And the other factions on the other side did the same thing. So, these 300 do it all together. Now, God amplifies what they're doing. He uses these 300 trumpets and these 300 lamps, and he makes the Midianites think they are surrounded by some huge army. And so the Midianites, in the middle of the night, they freak out, and they turn on each other. God does something supernatural to bring them victory, and we're going to see exactly what happens after this climactic point in the story. Verse 23 says, Israelites from Naphtali, Asher, and Manasseh were called out. Now, those are different tribes. If you're familiar with Israel, Israel was split into 12 tribes. And the 12 tribes kind of each had their own region. They each had their own part of the country. And so anybody remember what tribe Gideon was from? 
Found that out in chapter 6 a few weeks back. Gideon was from the tribe of Manasseh. And so Gideon, uh, he said, in fact, that he was the least in, in, in his clan, and his clan was the lowest in all of Manasseh. And so his tribe and these two neighboring tribes, Asher um, and, uh, excuse me, I lost my spot right here. Here we go, Asher, Manasseh, and Naphtali. So these three are the three primary tribes that are bringing this victory to Israel at this point. Verse 24, Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim. Now, what do you think Ephraim is? It's another tribe, okay? Um, In fact, Ephraim and Manasseh weren't actually tribes. They were half-tribes. Ephraim and Manasseh were the two sons of Joseph. And because Joseph was the most faithful of the 12 sons, God blessed him with a double portion. So Joseph actually got two tribes instead of just one. And since the Levites uh, didn't have any land of their own, Ephraim and Manasseh both got one-twelfth of the country. And so when if Gideon's from Manasseh, then the people from Ephraim are the closest tribe to them. They're, they're basically like cousin tribes. They're like brother tribes. They're one strain of the Israelite clan together, but they've been given a double bonus, a double portion of the inheritance. Important to know that because the Ephraimites are going to come up later in the story. Um, so, all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they took to the waters of the Jordan as far as Beth Barah. They also captured two of the Midianite leaders, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb. Lucky for him. Uh, and Zeb at the wine press of Zeb. Poor guys. Uh, they, they got memorialized, I guess, in their death. Uh, they pursued the Midianites and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon, who was by the Jordan. So first thought I want to give you uh, from the post-game show that I think is so critical for Christians, and we miss this a lot, is that every victory that God gives us in the spiritual, we will have to walk out in the natural. God won the victory over the Midianites last week. We saw the victory. We saw what God did. God did the supernatural. He did what only he could do. But even though God had already won the victory, Gideon and his men had to go and lay hold of it. They had to grab possession of what God had given them. We see this time and time again in Scripture. God delivers the Israelites over the Red Sea, and they're free from his slavery. But now what do they have to do? They have to go in and possess the promised land. Jericho and his men, they march around, uh, or excuse me, Joshua and his men, they march around Jericho every day for seven days, and on the seventh day they march around seven times, and the walls come tumbling down, this massive supernatural occurrence. What do they have to do then? Do they celebrate? Do they worship? No. They got to run in and take the city. They got to possess what God has already given them the victory for. David goes out and he slays a giant supernaturally. God guides the stone and he kills this massive giant. And Israel is free from the oppression of Goliath. What do they have to do? They got to go pursue the Philistines and wipe them out and drive them out of Israel. I don't know what the victory God has brought you in is. But whatever victory he brings, you're going to still have to walk that victory out. God gives you healing in your body. You're still going to have to take care of yourself. God gives you financial victory over debt. You're still going to have to put some boundaries up to where you don't get yourself back into debt. I've been there. Uh, God gives victory in, in whatever situation it may be. He may restore your marriage. Man, and this marriage was on the rocks, and oh my gosh, God did something amazing. You may still need to go through some marriage counseling. 
You may still need to, to start to make some different decisions with the way you allocate your time, with the way you treat one another and speak to one another. Just because God gives you victory doesn't mean the job is done then. Now it's our turn to pick it up. God does the super and we do the natural. And any time God gives you victory, whatever that victory may look like in your life, you're going to have to do something to walk that victory out. God may break your addiction. And you just feel it, man. You're, in, you're praying and you're just asking God for deliverance. And wow, man, I just got free from whatever this addiction may be. You're still going to have to put some boundaries up to keep yourself from falling back into that. Because you still got an enemy who knows your weakness. You still got an enemy who knows how he got you to fall the first time. And he's going to come back and he's going to attack and he's going to try to get you to fall back into that same thing that God just brought you out of. Whatever victory God gives you, you're going to have to walk it out in the natural. Time and time and time again, we see this. This is his pattern. Last week I told you about a great victory that God gave me in my life. I was 19 years old and I was fooling around sexually. I was in Bible college. I wanted to be a pastor. And here I was completely violating the word of God, completely dishonoring what he had for me to do. And uh, this had been going on really for a period of years. And I finally got to a place where I just knew I had to give it to God. And I, I got alone with God. I was out in the woods, and I got on my face, and I repented, and I worshiped. And God used that moment to completely transform the course of my life. Everything that God's done in my life since that point came out of that repentance. Every blessing that I have is because of that moment of getting right with God and, and dealing with this stuff. Here's what I didn't tell you, though. Here's what I had to do. God told me, If I was going to really repent and turn from my sin, it meant I wasn't going to be able to date for a while. I'd been a guy who I had a girlfriend all through high school. I was that guy. If I was breaking up with one girl, I had the next one lined up before we broke up. Like, I I was always in a relationship. And God said, you're going to have to take about a year off from dating just to, to reset your spirituality. Because every time you get into a relationship, you dishonor me. So if you're serious about honoring me, it means you're going to not do this anymore. I said, okay, God, I'm serious. I'm going to honor you. I'm not going to date anymore. I'm cutting this thing off for right now. And I'm thinking, okay, a year, it's a year, you know, I can do that, right? Turned into four years before God let me date again. I went from the time I was 19 to the time I was 23 without dating. Do you know how many of my friends got married between the time I was 19 and 23 years old? Do you know how many people asked questions? There was a sweet honest, godly woman at my home church in North Carolina who came to my mom and asked her straight up, is Troy gay? Because I went so long without dating somebody. I was not prepared for that. I was not ready for that question about my identity, okay? There's some things that I had to deal with as I walked out the victory that God brought into my life. And just because God brought victory, just because God brought forgiveness, just because God cleansed me from my sin, I had to do some things to reprogram my life so I didn't fall back into it. And anytime God brings you victory in the spiritual, you're going to have to take some steps to walk it out in the natural. And you need to know that. You need to be prepared for that. God will do what only he can do. And I praise God for it. There are things in my life that only could be there because God did them, but God will not do for me what I can do for myself. And he won't do it for you either. He wants us to play a part in the victory. He wants us to take steps towards it. And so we must always know, just like Gideon and his men here, they 
had an amazing victory won by God, but they still had to pursue the enemy. They still had to go after them. They had to call forth the Israelites from various tribes, from Naphtali, from Asher, from Manasseh. Come and help us. There's only 300 of us. There was 135,000 of them. I don't know how many of them have been wiped out by each other, but there's still a whole lot left. We've got to take them down. We're always going to have to walk out the victory God gives us. Moving on to Judges chapter 8. We're just going to go into four verses here in Judges 8. It says, Now the Ephraimites... Remember, who are the Ephraimites? The cousin tribe, right? Okay, Gideon's Manasseh. This is Ephraim. These are the closest tribe to them. Now the Ephraimites asked Gideon, Why have you treated us like this? Why didn't you call us when you went out to fight Midian? And they criticized him sharply. Second thing you need to know is that discouragement is always a part of our victory dance. In the midst of the greatest victory that Gideon would ever see, God does something so miraculous that we're preaching about it over 3,000 years later. In the midst of that, these small-minded, podunk, redneck Ephraimites come up to Gideon and they say, how come you didn't let us know you were going off to fight? In the midst of this supernatural victory, some stupid, small-minded people come and they start to criticize. And they start to run their mouths. And they start to yap. And what we have to understand is that discouragement always seems to be part of the victory dance. Every time God brings us to that supernatural spiritual high, the enemy's got somebody lined up to bring us right back down. He's always going to try and do this to us. Just as the thrill of victory is starting to set in for Gideon, all of a sudden... His brother tribe, his cousin tribe, this tribe that was closest to him outside of his own, comes and starts to attack. And instead of celebrating what Gideon has done, instead of celebrating what God has done, instead of celebrating that they're free, which is the most important thing in all of this, they're worried about who's getting the credit. They're worried about we didn't get invited to be a part of this. Gideon only had 300 men. It's not like he had thousands and thousands and he left them out. 300 men. And they were upset that they weren't a part of the victory. And we see that discouragement is time and time again a part of our victory dance. I've seen this in my own life over and over and over again. When God brings the greatest victories, it seems like the enemy is always ready to come in and try to steal my joy. If he can't steal my victory, he'll try to steal my joy. And he's good at it. He knows what he's doing. He's been doing it for a long time. Last week, we're at Camp 662. We have 15 students get baptized, including quite a few of these down here on our front row. Ten of them are from City Church. That Man, I am high on Jesus. I am celebrating what God has done. We've ended the camp on the greatest possible note. We've never done baptisms at camp before. We didn't know what it was going to be like. We took a chance. We felt like God was leading us to take this step, and the response is overwhelming. And we're celebrating, and we're so excited, and we're packing up our stuff, and we're getting ready to come home and share with the parents a great report. We're excited to come home and share with the church this amazing report. And you know what happens? I pull up to our meeting place where our sound system is, and I get out of the vehicle with a cargo van that we'd rented to take all the stuff down there, and the van auto-locks behind me. And now the cargo van keys are locked in the stupid van, and we're in the middle of nowhere, can't get a locksmith out there, can't find anybody who can pick the lock. And so I go from up here with Jesus to down here with frustration with Satan and myself in about two seconds. And just that quickly, 
a stupid key locked in a van completely snatched away my joy. Completely wiped out the excitement that I had over the supernatural things that God had done. Long story short, it took us about an hour between the time that it took us to get into the van and the time it took to clean up the mess from the window we had to break to get into the van. Thank you, Josh Newman. Uh, And put us an hour behind. For the first time ever, we we were an hour late coming back from camp. I was so proud of my camp record that we would always be back on time. And I was so frustrated coming back. And, And I remember actually, I think it was Josh. It was either Josh or Caleb as we were dealing with this mess. I told him, you know what? Isn't that just like the devil? To come right in and try to steal our joy right in the midst of what God has done. To try to distract us with something so simple and so dumb to take away from this amazing thing that God has has caused to happen in our lives. And it is. It is exactly just like the devil. That's exactly what he does. If he can't steal your victory, he will come to steal your joy. He will come after it. That's why we got to protect it. We got to guard it. Thankfully, I, I was caused through, I'm sure, through the Holy Spirit to, to be aware of this fairly early on in the process. And I was like, you know what? I'm not going to let this steal my joy. I'm not going to let this ruin my day. I'm not going to let this ruin my camp experience. And I was able to kind of rally and kind of rebound and kind of, again, remember what God had done. But it was seriously a matter of moments from the time that we're celebrating 15 baptisms to the time the enemy came to steal my joy. Discouragement is almost always a part of the victory dance. Sometimes it comes in the, in the form of voices like it does here for Gideon. Sometimes it's critics who come and they don't like the way you didn't. They don't like the way that you witnessed to that person. They don't like the way that you man, led that person to Christ. My parents, uh, they led my grandfather to Christ on his deathbed. He was a Mormon his entire life, or his entire adult life, and he got cancer of the mouth. And at 82 years old on his deathbed, my parents prayed with him to receive Jesus. This radical transformation takes place just weeks before my grandfather died. But you know what happened? As soon as it happened, family starts coming and attacking. Family starts coming and criticizing. Family starts so upset over what my parents had done. And the enemy came and tried to steal their joy immediately. They couldn't steal the victory. His salvation was set. He was saved. They couldn't take that away from grandpa, but they could take the victory, the joy of the victory away from mom and dad. Be ready. Man, when God wins a victory for you, be ready. That doesn't mean the fight is over. Sometimes it means the fight is just about to start. You've got to fight for your joy. You've got to fight for the celebration of what God has done. Moving on to verse 2. It says, he answered them. This is Gideon. Remember, he's just been criticized by the Ephraimites. They just said, why didn't you call us? Why didn't you bring us to be a part of this? They're criticizing him sharply. But Gideon answers them, what have I accomplished compared to you? Aren't the gleanings of Ephraim's grapes better than the full grape harvest of Abiezer? That was his clan. God gave Oreb and Zeb, the Midianite leaders, into your hands. What was I able to do compared to you? At this, their resentment against him subsided. Third thing I want you to see from the post game is we need to learn to avoid lesser battles. Avoid lesser battles. You see, Gideon had a mission. He had a calling to fulfill victory against Midian. And he had his eyes on the prize. He was focused on what God had called him to. And these little punks come and start running their mouth and trying to take away from what he's done. And he could have lowered himself right there. I mean, he was, he was Gideon. 
He was the big shot in all of Israel at this point. He just saved the entire nation. He could have responded any way he wanted to. He could have called them out. He could have put them down. He could have put them in their place so easily. But Gideon was focused on the bigger battle, and he did not lower himself to the lesser battle. And I wonder how many times I've lowered myself from the calling that God has on me, from the calling that God has on our church to engage in some stupid lesser battle, probably on Facebook. Uh, How many times have I lowered my focus from what God is trying to accomplish through me to try and deal with some little insignificant nothingness around me? Gideon avoided the lesser battle. He let the bigger battle guide him. He knew he needed the Ephraimites. If they were going to win total victory, he needed them on his side. And he could have put them in his place. He could have kicked them out of Israel. He could have done whatever he wanted at this point. He was the man. But he humbled himself. And he responded kindly and graciously. And in a way that I can't even imagine having the the intelligence in the moment to reply exactly the way Gideon did. The humility after this amazing thing that God had done through you to say, you know what, I'm nothing compared to you. Look at what everything that you guys have done. Did he really believe it? I doubt it. Maybe. It doesn't really matter. You know what? The Proverbs says that a soft answer turns away wrath. And I think this is the greatest illustration that I've come across in Scripture of that verse being fleshed out. Gideon responded softly to their criticism. He didn't try to confront what they were saying. He didn't try to fight with them. He didn't argue with them. He didn't get into what God told me to do this, and you weren't the one that God showed up to to talk to by the wine press, so you need to keep your mouth shut, which is probably how I would have wanted to respond to them. But he very graciously and very humbly lowered himself because he understood this was not a battle worth fighting. He could win this battle with the Ephraimites and lose the bigger battle. Or he could lose this battle with the Ephraimites and win the bigger battle. And he kept his eyes on the bigger battle. And he avoided the lesser battle. He took a loss. He humbled himself and said, you know what? You guys are even greater than I am. And there is so much for me to learn from this example. And I think probably for a lot of us. Because I think it's so easy for us to get caught up in the lesser battles all around us. I think Christians are great at engaging in lesser battles. We're great at sniping at each other across denominations. We're great at criticizing the way that somebody else does this or the way that somebody dresses for that. We're great at getting caught up in so much little junk. And God's got a big, huge, eternal battle that he's asking us to take up arms and fight. There's people dying and going to hell, and we're sitting here putting each other down. we got to wake up we got to knock it off. we got to realize that God's got something bigger for us to accomplish. we got to realize that our life matters, that God put us here for a reason. we got to start to avoid the lesser battles. One of the things I love about this church is I don't see a lot of this lesser battle nonsense at City Church. I love that about you guys. I'm so grateful for that. I, I talk to other pastors, and they share their horror stories and what goes on in their church, and I'm like, I don't even know how you do it. Like, I don't know how you, I can tolerate some of the nonsense that Christians put their pastors through. Thank you guys for not being dumb. Can I just say that? Is that okay? Thank you for not being idiots. Um, I'm so grateful for a church that gets it. But man, let's keep our eyes focused on the prize. 
We are not above falling and making those same mistakes. We are not above getting into that same junk that, that time and time again the enemy uses to completely neutralize the effectiveness of God's people. Gideon got it. He understood. This fight is not worth fighting. You can say whatever you want to about me. God's got something for me, and I'm not going to miss out on what God has dealing with this nonsense. We've got to avoid the lesser battles. We've got another principle here from verse 2 and 3. I want to read one more time, verse 2 and 3. It says, but he answered them, what have I accomplished compared to you? Aren't the gleanings of Ephraim's grapes better than the full grape harvest of Abiezer? God gave Oreb and Zeb, the Midianite leaders, into your hands. What was I able to do compared to you? At this, their resentment against him subsided. The other principle I want to see right here is that there is no limit to what we can accomplish together when we don't care who gets the credit. There's no limit to the victory God can win through his people when we quit fussing about who gets the credit. How beautiful is it that Gideon, the one who God showed up to and spoke to, the one who God called and said, I want you, Gideon, to be the one to win this victory. He was the one who got it and said, I don't care if I get the credit. I don't care if my name's attached to it. You can put your name on it all you want to because it's not my victory anyway, it's his. You know how much we could accomplish for the glory of God if we didn't care who got the credit? We didn't care who was on the stage or who was cleaning the bathroom. We didn't care who who was leading worship or who was in the nursery. What could we accomplish if we didn't quit caring and worrying about titles and positions and what somebody else sees and what somebody else thinks and just said, you know what? God's got a part for me to play in the most important battle on earth, the battle for the world's eternity. And I'm going to take whatever part he has for me. And I don't care if anybody notices. I don't care if anybody gets the credit. I don't care if I'm going to get any glory from it. I just want his name to be glorified. When I was an intern in Tulsa, I had this incredible opportunity. I was 21 years old. I had this incredible opportunity because basically some people got fired to be the assistant missions director my internship year. No intern before has ever done this. No intern after has ever done this. This was a a, a very unique situation for me, and it's how I really fell in in love with doing short-term missions. And so we got to do two trips that summer. We got to take uh, about 70 people to Florida and about 30 people to New Mexico and Texas. And my boss, whose name was Brother Randy, Brother Randy, Delegated pretty much everything to me. He went as the missions director to be the adult to make sure, you know, nobody killed each other. Uh, But he pretty much said, you're you're doing it all. You're running the meetings. You're training the leaders. You're training the assistants. You're training the kids. I'm giving you all the responsibility because I believe in you. Amazing, amazing opportunity, one that I did not deserve and really kind of screwed up towards the end. But despite my own failings, man, God did amazing things on those trips. And, And I was so blown away by his trust in me by his willingness to give me this responsibility. So at the end of this, these trips, the, the first trip went amazing. The Florida trip, man, I was on my game. Uh, I was prayed up. I was ready. We nailed it. The second trip, pride comes before a fall, right? I got a little cocky. First one went great with 70 people. The second one with 30 people, going to be no problem, right? I got this. Well, I wasn't as prayed up. I wasn't as on top of my game. It was still a good trip. It wasn't a disaster. But there were some things that we missed that, that was because of my leadership, and I, I hate that to this day. So after the trips are over with, our youth pastor, his name was Blaine, Blaine calls everybody together who is involved with these trips, all the interns, all the staff, the worship team, I mean the students, anybody who went on these trips, we we had this meeting. And he goes through and he literally lists off every person 
involved in these trips, giving honor to him. Man, here's what you did great. Here's what I'm so proud of that you did. I mean, top to bottom, except me. My name did not come out of his mouth once. It was so clear and so blatant and so obvious that I had like six people come to me afterwards and be like, dude, I am so sorry. He didn't say anything. Like people were like hurting for me. Uh, and, And I remember just being so devastated in that moment that this man who I looked up to so much didn't recognize how much I'd put into this. I wasn't perfect, but man, I was pretty proud of what I'd done. I was pretty proud of what I'd been able to pull off, and nobody really thought I'd be able to do it except Brother Andy. And I was so hurt that he didn't give me even a snip of the credit. But you know what hurt me worse? It was the realization afterwards that I wanted it. And I'm pretty sure he skipped me on purpose. I'm pretty sure he knew I was at a place where my head was doing this. And that he didn't need to contribute a little more helium to my head. And he held back that, that credit. I'm almost positive, And we never had a conversation about it. I wish I'd have confronted him about it. But I didn't. Uh, I'm pretty sure he held that back for my own good. And for the good of the trip. But you know, man, it, it's devastating for me to look back and say, I wanted some of the credit. I wanted somebody to notice me. I wanted somebody to say, Troy, you did a great job. It's not about me. It's not about who gets the credit. Man, we've got to have that attitude that I don't care if somebody notices. Man, trust me, I believe that we should be people of honor, and we should honor one another. Man, when we see somebody doing something good, we should call it out. We should give honor where honor is due. But when it comes back to us, don't worry about if you're getting the props or not. Don't worry about if somebody's giving you the credit. Don't worry about if somebody's recognizing what you're doing. And that's a lot easier said than done. Because we all like to know that somebody noticed. But here's the beautiful part. If nobody on earth notices what you're doing, God notices. And the honor from him is so much greater than the honor that anybody on this earth could give you. Him looking down and saying, well done, my good and faithful daughter. Well done, my good and faithful son. is so much greater than anything anybody in this room could ever give to one another. Now honor each other. Celebrate each other. You see somebody doing something great? Man, point it out. Go out of our way to to honor one another. But even if you get overlooked, even if somehow nobody notices that great thing you're doing, understand this, God sees it, and he's going to celebrate it. And I believe there's no limit to what we can do in this community if we get to a place where we don't care who gets the credit. That's what I loved about Gideon's story. In the midst of everything God did through him, he wasn't worried about Gideon's name at all. He was worried about God's name. It's amazing, amazing truth. Final little point I want to give to you here is going to come from verse 4. Verse 4 says, Gideon and his 300 men, exhausted yet keeping up the pursuit, came to the Jordan and crossed it. Last little thought from the post game is when you're exhausted, keep keep up the pursuit. When you're exhausted, keep up the pursuit. I don't know how long all of you have been Christians or all of you have been pursuing God's best for your life, but... Sometimes it just wears you out. Anybody else just been worn out serving God before? Anybody been to that place where it's like, man, I don't have much left. I'm kind of just tired of all this right now. Um, Man, I know what it's like to be worn out. I know what it's like to be exhausted. And I love that the Bible even chose to include this language. It's so wild to me the things that are included in scriptural accounts and things that are not. God saw fit, his Holy Spirit saw fit to make sure we knew that Gideon and his men were exhausted, yet keeping up the pursuit. These 300 had been through so much 
these past few days. They'd been through so much spiritually, emotionally, physically. Man, they had given everything they had to free Israel, and the job wasn't done yet. They still had to pursue the enemy. And it had been so easy for them to say, you know what, we've done the hard part. We got some reinforcement. You guys go in there and take it, finish off the job. It had been so easy to say, man, we just need a day. We're just going to take a day, take a day and chill, and then we'll pick up the pursuit again. It had been so easy to just step back, but they knew the urgency of the moment. They knew that it mattered. They knew that this victory could only be fully won if they kept the pursuit, and they did. What's amazing about this is why they were exhausted. A lot of times I think we, we think that if we're exhausted, it's because we're doing something wrong, and sometimes it is because we're doing something wrong. Sometimes we're exhausted because we're up until 2 in the morning on the Internet or watching Sports Center 17 times. Not that I've ever done that. Um, but sometimes that's why we're exhausted, right? That's self-inflicted exhaustion. We don't get to blame anybody else for that. But Gideon and his men, they weren't in that mode. They weren't exhausted because they were using their time poorly. They weren't exhausted because they weren't eating right. They weren't exhausted because of any self-inflicted thing. They were exhausted because they were fighting the bigger battle. Because they were doing exactly what God called them to do. And in the very center of God's will for their lives, they came up against exhaustion. And I just want to encourage you today, if you're exhausted, it doesn't necessarily mean you're doing it wrong. It might actually mean you're doing it right. It might actually mean you're fulfilling everything that God's calling you to and listening to every leading he's placed on your heart. And he's got victory for you just beyond that exhaustion. I don't think we're supposed to be in an eternal state of exhaustion. I'm not talking about running people ragged. But sometimes what God's calling us to is just a little step beyond what we feel like we can accomplish. And I think there's a reason for that. I think it's because God doesn't want us to accomplish it in our own strength but in his. And when we're exhausted, we got to lean on him. we got to lean on his strength, on his ability, on everything that he's provided for us. Gideon's men was, were exhausted because they fulfilled God's calling on their life, and it wore them out. It exhausted them. You know, exhaustion is one of the most vulnerable things to bring us into temptation. It's one of the things that makes it most likely for us to fall. Statistics say that most, uh, the worst time for a pastor, the time when a pastor is most likely to fall into sin, is Monday because they're exhausted after Sunday. And that's just one example. I know most of you guys aren't pastors and probably won't ever be pastors. I'm not saying Mondays are the day that you've got to watch out for, although we all hate Mondays, right? Uh, but, but exhaustion is a time where it's so easy to mess up. It's so easy to justify getting into something we're not supposed to. It's so easy to say, you know what? I just deserve this right now. I can, you know, this isn't going to hurt me that bad. Nobody's going to know. It's so easy when we're exhausted to just let down our defenses and give in to whatever temptation the enemy brings us. Sometimes that temptation is going to come just in the form of, you don't need to worry about spending any time with God today. God knows your heart. God, you just need to rest. I've heard that voice. I don't know if you've ever heard that voice. That voice is going to come and tell you, man, you just take it easy today. Your body needs that rest. And you know what we do when when we deprive ourselves of that time with God? Is we're depriving ourselves of rest. We are. You know what Jesus says? He says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Find that passage in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Matthew 11, 28. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Rest. It's an amazing promise of God. If you're exhausted today, you need to know Jesus promises rest. 
I don't know if I'm the only one here, but man, that fires me up. I need some rest, Jesus. Sounds good. I will sign up for that promise. I like to know that Jesus promises me rest. He promises rest, but here's the thing. Like most of God's promises, God's love is unconditional, but most of his promises are not. His promise is conditional. What's the condition on the promise? Come to me, all who are weary and burdened. See, the mistake we make is we try to find rest in anything but Jesus. We try to find rest in recreation. We try to find rest in entertainment. We try to find rest in relationship. We try to find rest in food or beverage or other recreational stuff. Uh, We try to find rest in all these other places. And Jesus says, you're looking the wrong place. All you got to do is come to me. And in the midst of exhaustion, can I just encourage you to keep up the pursuit? In the midst of exhaustion, lean into Jesus. Don't lean away from him. Don't listen to that voice that says, well, you can just take this week off. You don't need to serve this week. You don't need to attend this week. You don't need to spend time with me this week. You don't need to to pray this week. Don't listen to that voice. The voice wouldn't say time with me this week, sorry. But you don't need to spend time with God this week. Uh, Don't give in to that voice. When you're exhausted, keep up the pursuit. I know when I'm exhausted, the easy thing to do is just to slack off. Just to take it easy is to say, you know what? That's all I got. And there's a time we need physical rest. I'm not saying physical rest isn't important. I'm not saying there's not a time for, man, God created a seven-day week with one day for rest for a reason. We're supposed to rest, and that's physical. There's the way our bodies is designed. We need rest. But the greatest rest we'll ever get is coming into Jesus, is leaning into him. And if you're exhausted today, I'm just telling you, go to Jesus. Spend some time with Jesus. Get to know Jesus. Uh, Maybe you don't even know what that looks like. Maybe you don't even know where to begin. I'm talking about one-on-one, just you and him. Open your Bible. Read a a passage. Talk to him. Share your heart. Share your exhaustion. Share your frustration. Share the thing that you don't want to do anymore. God, this is where I'm at. You just need to know this. I'm done. I can't do this anymore. It's okay to quit in a conversation with God as long as you're willing to take it back up if he says take it back up. Uh, I've had to do that in certain situations, man. It's okay to quit. I mean, you quit your marriage in a conversation with God. He's going to tell you to take it back up. So just be ready. Uh, But you can do that if you just need to vent. God, I'm done. I can't talk to her anymore. It's it. Just tell him. And then he's going to tell you you're stupid. Uh, and And she's a blessing in your life. And you need to pursue her. And even though you're exhausted, you keep up the pursuit. I don't know what it is that you're exhausted by. Keep up. The pursuit story that I came across a few years ago that that's inspired me so much. There's a lady named Florence May Chadwick. And Florence May Chadwick was a champion swimmer. She was a distance swimmer. In fact, she was the first woman who ever swam the English Channel both ways from England to France and from France to England. And so in 1952, Florence May Chadwick took on a new challenge. She was going to swim from Catalina Island off the California coast to California, 26 miles. She was going to swim from Catalina Island to the California coast. And as she entered into the water, that she had uh, some boats, small boats that traveled alongside her that would be there in case she faltered, be there just to kind of help her out, give her directions, etc. Um, so she takes off, and she begins to swim. And about 15 hours into the swim, it's supposed to be about a 16 and a half, 17-hour swim, about 15 and a half hours in, she says, I don't think I can go anymore. It's like, I'm, I'm coming, I'm running out of energy. Uh, there was fog had set in, and because of the fog, they couldn't see the California coastline, so they didn't know how far away they were. It's like, I don't think I can do it much, much longer. Her mom was actually one of the boats, and she tells her mom, I don't think I can do it much longer. And they encourage her, come on, you got it, you can do this, keep pushing. And so she pushes on for another hour. 
she gets to the 16-hour mark. And at the 16-hour mark, 25 miles into her 26-mile journey, she decides, I can't see the shoreline. I'm probably still miles away. I'm just going to stop right here. And she misses her goal. She misses the thing that she was trying to accomplish by one mile in about 35 minutes. And I wonder how many Christians have missed the victory that God has for us because we just didn't spend any more time with God that one more day. How many times has somebody not come to Jesus because we just didn't witness that one more time? How many times have we not seen victory come into our relationship because we just didn't pray one more day? How many times has victory been right there for the taking? We're just a mile away. We're just 35 minutes away from the goal, but we say, you know what? I don't have it anymore. I can't do it because I can't see the finish line. You know, a lot of times spiritually we won't see the finish line. A lot of times spiritually there's going to be some fog. We don't know what's going to be the day when that person gives their life to Jesus. We don't know what's going to be the day when, man, this marriage that we've been fighting for, this family we've been fighting for, when all of a sudden it's healthy again. We don't know exactly at what point everything's going to fall into place, but what's God called you to? What's the bigger battle he's placed in your life? What's the thing that he's put you on this earth to accomplish right now in this season? Whatever that is, I know it's easy to get exhausted. But when you get exhausted, keep pursuing. Keep pursuing. Keep pursuing. Now, if God releases you, that's a different story. I've been released from from pursuing somebody's salvation because I was just, I couldn't do it anymore. And I felt the release of the Holy Spirit. You know what? I'm going to have somebody else take that that, that burden for a while. I'm taking that off of you. If God releases you, don't keep pushing. I understand that. But, man, if God doesn't release you, it's because you don't, you got more left to give. You can do it. You can get there. This woman, she said afterwards, she said, I know I could have swam another mile. I just didn't know I was only a mile from the end. How many times do we cut things off just that close to the victory God has for us? Be like Gideon. Learn from him and his men. Even though you're exhausted, keep up the pursuit. And in the midst of your exhaustion, Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Come to Jesus, and he'll give you rest from your exhaustion. Let's pray.